Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. starting a new series today and I couldn't be more excited. I mean, if you've thought to yourself, hey, hey Ryan, where, where are we going as a church? What, what are some of the things that are in your heart? Some of the things that you're passionate about? Who do we imagine that will be as a church community in the next decade? And what's going to be the vision of our church as we move forward? If you've thought any of those questions, this series is going to be the answer to a lot of them. So I want to encourage you, don't miss any of the next seven weeks. It was back in November that I got a phone call from one of my friends in Colorado. He was coming out to San Diego. He had chartered a deep sea fishing boat and he invited me to go with him. I initially said no because it was on a Thursday and I don't take Thursdays off. I'm sort of a creature of habit. I want to get my work done and then take my time off in sort of bunches so that I can really rest. So I'm not a take a Thursday off kind of guy. But after talking to my wife and a few friends, it was just an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And I'm so glad that I said yes. I mean, it was one of those beautiful 70 degree days on the Pacific Ocean. As we're going out to find the pads to fish off of, we saw pods of dolphins, hundreds and hundreds of dolphins. And to top it all off, we saw a whale that jumped out of the water and then splash right in front of us. We caught Dorado and Yellowfin and Yellowtail. And as we were cruising back into the bay in San Diego, I thought to myself, I almost said no to this. I don't know if you've thought about this, but our world and our lives are filled with invitations. Now, most of them aren't invitations to events like the one that I just described. They're they're actually invitations to ways of viewing the world, ways of thinking about the world. Uh, Maybe even you might even call it an invitation to a world view, (laughs) You might have seen these in like a forward that you got from somebody. You've got to watch this video, right? And it was uh, somebody that was telling you, a doctor that was explaining what's really going on, right? Or a scientist trying to unpack how we got here. Or or a, a philosopher that was trying to explain where all of this thing that we call life is heading, Yeah, we're surrounded and inundated by invitations. I mean, conspiracy theories are invitations. Secular humanism is an invitation. Nationalism is an invitation. Liberalism is an invitation. And all of those invitations are asking us to believe something and then to view the world in a certain way in light of the new convictions that we have. The men that flew planes into the World Trade Centers did so because of an invitation. The people that marched with Dr. Martin Luther King did so because of an invitation. And the people that first said yes to Jesus 
did so because of an invitation. And see, see, that's the kind of invitation that the gospel presents to us. Uh, the gospel is an invitation to rethink the way that we view everything. We often diminish the gospel to information about how to get to heaven when we die. But it's so much more than that. It's a, a call that demands our whole life and in return offers us true, abundant life. See, it's interesting. If you were to go on the street today and just do a survey and ask people, what, what do you think about Christians and, and how would you describe a Christian in one word? People might answer, well, a Christian is somebody who believes in Jesus. A Christian is somebody who does good. A Christian is somebody who votes Republican. A Christian is somebody who cares about the poor. A Christian is somebody who is against abortion. A Christian is somebody who feeds the hungry. And in so many ways, uh, those descriptions are, are at least partially true, most of them. But when we go to the scriptures to try to see what the people in the first century thought about Christians, the most shocking thing that we find is that they didn't often think of them as Christians. <laughs> I mean, think about that. That wasn't the word that was used to describe the first followers of Jesus. In fact, the word Christian is only used three times in the entire Bible. Now, listen to the way that Luke records for us in the book of Acts, the way that people talked about and named the first followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 read like this, But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. There it is. That, that's, that's how they talked about early followers of Jesus. They were disciples of the Lord. Christian is used three times in the Bible. Disciples is used 269 times in the Bible. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So they called them disciples and they called them people of the way. Now, there are all sorts of implications for the early followers of Jesus being called people of the way. But let me draw out what might be the most obvious that early disciples were identified most readily, not by what they thought, not necessarily by what they believed, but they were identified by the way that they lived. Because early disciples were committed to modeling their lives after the life of Jesus. The early disciples didn't just believe in Jesus for salvation. They trusted in Jesus to teach them how to live their daily lives. And in this series, over the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want to call you back to the way. I want to paint a picture for what it looked like for early disciples to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And then I want to unashamedly call you to live in his way with 
his heart. But it's going to take us breaking Jesus out of the realm of only talking about spirituality or about heaven. And it's going uh, it's to require that we ground him in the reality of the fact that he was a brilliant rabbi teaching people how to live in the kingdom of God. So this series is all about inviting us to become part of the way. And in order to do that, what I want to do is point us back to Jesus's first call to his first disciples, because in that call, I think we'll also find ours. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to be starting in verse 12. Listen to the way that Matthew records the entrance of Jesus onto the scene of public history. This is his very first message that he gives. It says this, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. Uh, Capernaum was at the northwest corner of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was actually a hub for rabbis and for disciples, a hotbed for that kind of activity. Many think that that's why Jesus chose it as his home base. So that what was spoken, verse 14, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So, So quick time out. Matthew wants to ground what's happening with Jesus in an ancient story. He wants us to connect the dots, to connect the pieces, to see that the long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah had prophesied about, that Isaiah had told us about, was now on the scene. He was the culmination of Israel's story and the beginning of ours. Listen to the way that Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. It says, in the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I mean, this is one of the most prolific messianic prophecies that we have in the Old Covenant And Matthew is applying it directly to Jesus. If those words didn't ring a bell, my guess is that Isaiah chapter 9, same chapter, just a few verses down will. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So catch this, friends. By quoting Isaiah... Matthew is telling us that this prophecy is being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the wonderful Counselor. And He is on the scene. See, the future is breaking into the present. Heaven is invading earth. History is reaching its climactic point. The fulfillment 
of God's plan is coming to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. He's breaking into our brokenness. As we'll see, he is healing our sins, forgiving our sins, calling us into his family, and then launching us into a revolution. And listen to the way that Matthew continues. It it aligns perfectly with this revolution that Isaiah pointed to. Listen, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven is Jesus' main message. He referenced the kingdom of heaven over 100 times in the Gospels. Some biblical scholars would argue that this is the, the vertebrae on which everything else hangs. I mean, listen to some of the other ways that Jesus talked about the kingdom. He said this in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The only time Jesus describes the gospel right here, he describes it as the kingdom of God breaking in. It's also the message that he claimed he had to go preach. Listen to the way that Luke chapter 4 verse 43 records it. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Why was Jesus sent? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And many would say, well, the kingdom of God was what Jesus talked about until his death. But then after his death, the message was all about his death on the cross for us. Now, I don't want to say, because the New Testament talks a lot about the cross, about the blood of Jesus and how important that is. So I'm not saying that that's unimportant, but Jesus talked about the kingdom of God after his death and resurrection. Also, listen to the way that Luke recorded his words in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. It says this, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. And what did he do during those 40 days? What did he talk about? Luke tells us, speaking to them about, guess, got any guesses? Yep, the kingdom of God. So even after his death, this was the message. I'd say it like this, if we don't talk about the kingdom of God. We don't talk about the gospel that Jesus talked about. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, okay, well, Ryan, what, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? We, we live in a democratic republic. The, the idea of a monarchy and kings and kingdoms is a little bit foreign to us. What in the world do we mean when we talk about the kingdom? Well, it was interesting that Isaiah continued to write in Isaiah chapter 9 and listen to what he said. He said, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Governance and throne. I mean, this is kingdom language. And I think what Isaiah is saying is that when this Jesus comes on the scene and Matthew says he's here, that all of this kingdom, the government, governance, the throne, the authority of Jesus will come with him. 
See, everyone was expecting that this Isaiah 9-7 prophecy would be fulfilled in the overthrowing of the Roman Empire. But it wasn't fulfilled in that way in Jesus' day, and it isn't fulfilled in that way in our day either. See, you might describe a kingdom as the range of someone's effective will. It's the place where what they want done gets done. Most people have a kingdom. It's probably a pretty small kingdom. For some people, it's their, their bedroom, right? For some people, it's maybe a workplace. For others, they have a, a bigger kingdom. They have more influence. But a kingdom is the place where what you want done gets done. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he talked about this kingdom. He, he said this, pray like this. Pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that last phrase is a great picture of the kingdom of God. On earth as it is in heaven. In fact, I would invite you to write this down today. The kingdom of heaven invades earth when God's desires, or heaven, become our reality, earth. When God's desires, God's heartbeat, becomes our reality. And catch this, Jesus was claiming that it was possible to bring your life under his reign, to choose to have your heart and your attitude shaped in such a way that what Jesus wants done is actually done in and through you. I love the way that Dallas Willard captured this when he said this, Disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of the heavens to every aspect of their lives. Now, for early followers of the way, uh, to be part of the kingdom was a political statement, a relational guide. It was a whole life invitation. So a good follow-up question might be, well, where does this kingdom take place? Well, where, where does this happen? I mean, many of us imagine that the kingdom of heaven is a distant someday, maybe, like we'll go to heaven when we die. That's what we think about when we hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus tells us exactly where it happens. He says, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is right now. Uh, later on in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is within you. It's bursting forth in your bones. Yeah, it's not at this point going to displace the Roman Empire or the empires of the earth in our day, but it can take place within you at any moment of any day. See, many scholars would say the kingdom is now, but it's not yet. Here's what they mean by that. They mean that the kingdom is present, but it's not fully present. It's, it's been introduced, but it hasn't been fully realized. I think a more accurate way of viewing it is that the kingdom of heaven is now, but it still has competition. <laughs> the kingdom of darkness still wants to push against the kingdom of light. There will be a day when the kingdom of darkness doesn't push back anymore. But that day is not today. In fact, listen to the way that the Apostle Paul wrote it in the book of Colossians. He said this in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
When I was a college pastor, I took a, a group of our leaders up to Mammoth, and there's this great little hot springs in a river uh, th that's right outside of Mammoth. And you have to swim through this ice-cold river that's snowmelt runoff in order to get to this uh, hot spring that's in the middle of the river, river that's just bubbling up. And when you sit on it, I mean, you can hardly even sit there. It's so hot. But if you step outside of it, you step into this freezing cold river. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Is that river hot or cold? Wh which is it? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. It depends on where you're standing. The same is true of the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God here? Yes. Is the kingdom of darkness here? Yes. But you get to choose every single day which kingdom you live in. And I would invite you to write this down. With every decision we choose, whether we live in God's kingdom, every decision is a choice about a kingdom. Responding unhealthily to anger or choosing to love, that's a kingdom choice. Being dishonest or learning to live truthfully, that's a kingdom choice. Holding on to bitterness or deciding to forgive, that's a kingdom choice. And every moment you and I are choosing whether or not we live in the cold part or the warm part of the river. The kingdom of God isn't just something we're waiting for someday. It's something that we get to choose to walk in today. Yeah, Jesus said the kingdom is at hand and he gave us instructions on how to enter it. So the question you might be asking is, how do we actually live in this kingdom that's at hand? That's a great question. Jesus is going to teach us how by making a statement, and then Matthew's going to tell us a story to give us a picture in our minds of what it actually looks like. Listen to Jesus's statement about how. He said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That, that's, that's how we enter it. That word repent is uh, the word metanoia in the Greek. It means to change our mind or to change our thinking in a way that leads to a change in action. Now, let's look at what that actually looks like lived out in our day-to-day -day lives. Let's keep reading Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. He continues, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And this next verse, verse 19, is the verse that I'd love for you to memorize when it comes to discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? Here, listen to what Jesus says to them. This is the calling of the first disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And notice what Matthew is doing here. He's combining two ideas. The reality of the kingdom of God that's present and at hand, Jesus's announcement of the gospel, and the call to enter that kingdom, which is the call to become disciples. The kingdom and discipleship go together. They are intricately connected. You don't get one without the other. And I'd invite you to write this down. 
Discipleship is learning to live in God's kingdom under Jesus' reign. Discipleship is learning, it's a process, learning to live in God's kingdom under Jesus' reign. You might hear us use the phrase, in his way, with his heart. We're talking about the same thing there. See, discipleship is not about studying the Bible. It's not about having all the right answers. And it's not about going to heaven when you die. It's about bringing your whole life under the reign of Jesus right now. And some of those things are pathways to get there. Sure, studying the Bible is a great thing. But part of those things are are the byproduct of doing that. Yep, we go to heaven when we die. If we want to be with Jesus now, we'll want to be with him forever. We go to heaven when we die. But discipleship is bringing our whole life under the reign of Jesus right now. And you may have caught it, you may not have. In verse 19, there's actually a, a threefold invitation that's laid out. It's our discipleship paradigm here at Emmanuel Faith. It's what I hope guides us over the next decade of our life together as we seek to live in his way with his heart, to live in his kingdom and under the reign of Jesus. This is the pathway from our first day of being a disciple to our last. Three things, and I want you to get these. I want us to get them, so I want to call you to write them down. Here's the first one. Jesus said this, he said, come and follow me. We often hear this as a a conceptual invitation. Come and believe in me. Come and study about me. But that wasn't how the first disciples heard it. The first disciples, they heard this invitation, come and follow me, as a literal command. They, if you keep reading, they leave their nets on the shore and they go and they follow Jesus. That's what disciples did with a rabbi back in the first century. They were, disciples were by the rabbi's side at every moment they could be. They walked where the rabbi walked. They ate what the rabbi ate. They prayed like the rabbi prayed. They used the restroom like the rabbi did. I mean, there's stories of disciples sort of following their their, uh, rabbi into the bathroom to see what kind of prayer he prayed after he went to the bathroom. I mean, that's taking it a little bit to the extreme. But I guess they wanted to figure out how to thank God for giving them holes in their body that work the right way. And you know how important those things are if they don't work the right way. So they're like, well, let's learn from our rabbi how to thank God for this gift that he has given us. Here was their goal, though. Here was their goal. The goal was to be with Jesus. Would you write that down? That's the first goal of every disciple is to be with Jesus. I want to give you some like directions that go along with this. This is an upward direction to recognize that we live all of our life in a God-bathed world, to recognize that God is present in every moment, at every day, that as followers of Jesus, his spirit resides in us and we can have union and intimacy with God, that we can learn how to abide in his presence. I cannot say this strongly enough, friends. It is not difficult to be a disciple if we're not intentionally spending time with Jesus. It is impossible. It is impossible. And it's also not accidental. We have to choose it. We have to be intentional about it. But I believe that it is one of the defining characteristics that will shape our life. In fact, 
Listen to the way that Luke records the way people talked about followers of the way. Here's what they said in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. Now, just so we're on the same page, that's not a compliment, right? We understand that these guys aren't educated. They're just really normal dudes. And listen to what they say next. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love it that the early disciples weren't known for what they knew. They weren't known for even what they believed. They they were known for being people who had been in the presence of Jesus. If you want people to say the same thing about your life, the number one way you do that and the only way you do that is you've got to actually be with Jesus. When you do that, people will see that you're more loving, that you're more forgiving, that you're more generous, that you're more truthful, that you're a healer, that you speak life and truth and good and blessing into the lives of people around you. See, people intuitively always know who and what you've been around. We carry the aroma of the things that we've been around. I call this the subway effect. If you've ever gone into a Subway sandwich restaurant, you know you smell like Subway the rest of the day. You're going like, oh yeah, Subway. (laughs) The same is true of Jesus, though. If we're intentional about spending time with Jesus, cultivating intimacy with Jesus, we'll carry his aroma the rest of the day. I mean, I want to be so close to Jesus that if he has COVID, I catch it right? Like that, that's how intimate with him I want to be. For a long time, and my, one of my number one goals was trying hard for Jesus. And I've just sensed this invitation over the last decade of following Christ. It's not about trying harder. It's learning to cultivate relationship with. I long for my whole life to be an outflow of being in the presence of God. The presence of the Trinity and love that's pouring forth from God to me because, friends, his presence changes everything. In his presence, there's refreshing. In his presence, there's hope. In his presence, there's life. In his presence, there's love. And here's the thing. Catch this today. Jesus actually enjoys your presence. And he's inviting you to cultivate presence with him. be with me. That's the first goal of every disciple that they orient their lives around to be with Jesus. But it's really interesting. This invitation, follow me, was inverted from the way that rabbis normally operated in Jesus's day. See, usually it was a disciple that would go to a rabbi to ask them, do I have what it takes to become like you? Do I have what it takes to do what you do? Do I, do I have enough information, enough knowledge? Have I memorized enough of the scripture to be a Talmudin, to be a mathetes in the Greek, to be a, a disciple? And the rabbi would then decide. Jesus inverts that, turns it all on its head, and he's calling people to be his disciples, as if to say, you have what it takes to live in my way, with my heart, because I will do the work 
in you. Listen to the next goal that Jesus lays out. He says, follow me and I will make you, make you. Stop there. That's a translation of a Greek word that means to to make or to manufacture or to construct. I love the idea that Jesus is telling these fishermen, I'm going to construct you into something new, into something different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to form you and shape you. And I've got the perfect, most beautiful blueprint of the building that I'm going to construct because I am the blueprint, Jesus would say. I, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And the Christian life is being conformed more and more into the image of God as we're grounded in the truth of God and empowered by the Spirit of God. See, this is the second goal of every disciple. The first is to be with Jesus. The second is to become like Jesus. You may think of this in an, in an inward direction. The first goal of discipleship has to do with pursuing and living in the presence of God, but the second goal has to do with what happens to us on the inside as we do that. See, as we learn to abide in the love of the Trinity, we become different kinds of people. Our hearts are softened, our attitudes are reshaped, our values are reconfigured. Now, Now, there's one qualifier that I just need to mention This doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen without what we might call grace-driven effort. It takes our participation with the Spirit of God to become different kinds of people. That's why we're calling this the adventure of becoming a disciple. See, friends, there are things in each one of us that Jesus wants to heal, that he wants to make more full, ways that he wants to make us more fully human and more truly ourselves. It might be abuse that we've suffered when we're young that he wants to heal. It might be lies that we believe, addictions that we can't let go of. See, all sin dehumanizes us, and Jesus, in saving us, is healing us and restoring us and redeeming us. Oh, there are beautiful pictures of this going on all over at our church. I'm excited to share some of them with you over the next few weeks. This is one of the goals, to become like Jesus. And then let me give you the final goal for every disciple. Jesus says, follow me, so be with me, and I will make you become like me, fishers of men. So Jesus is claiming that he's going to turn his disciples into people who fish, quote unquote, for other people. It's Jesus' way of saying, you're going to do exactly what I do. See, the goal of discipleship is never to terminate on itself. It's never just so that we're more happy or we're more joyful or we're more full of life. It's so that we might make an impact on the people around us. This is the third goal, is to do as Jesus did. To do as Jesus did. You might think of this as an outward direction. The discipleship is moving us outward and some of you may be wondering, well, of all the things that Jesus did, Ryan, which, which should we focus on? Which should we make our priority? Well, just keep reading because Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 talks about some of the things that Jesus did. It says this, He went throughout Gal- all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
What did Jesus do? Well, two primary things. He preached or proclaimed the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom of God, that's what he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. You, you can bring your life under the reign of Jesus right now. And second, he healed diseases and affliction. He, he was somebody who was restoring people back to wholeness and health. And I would say that we are to be doing the same thing, word and deed, that we live out the calling of Jesus, both in the words that we say and in the lives that we live. See, Jesus addressed people's spiritual needs. He addressed people's physical needs. And I would argue you can't be about the kingdom of God and the gospel unless you address both. I just want to say as clearly as I can, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is empowering you to do as he did. So let me make an, an extreme statement. I think it's impossible to be a disciple if we're not intentionally making other disciples. That could be disciples of our, of our kids if we have them, disciples of, of mentoring and mentoring relationships in a workplace with a neighbor or a friend or family member. But if we aren't actively imparting what Jesus is putting into our life, into the lives of others, we aren't the kind of disciples that Jesus talks about in the scriptures. Listen to the way that Dallas Willard put it, this great calling, he said. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of existence. Friends, what a great challenge for us today. How might you live that out in your workplace, in your family, and with your friends? See, see, there's two primary practices that I want to invite you to uh, in, in light of what we've talked about today. Here's, here's the first, is to be a person that seeks out Jesus in the scriptures, that, that, that you would study the scriptures, that you'd read the scriptures, And secondly, that you'd become a person of prayer. Those are two foundational practices. Well, we're going to add more as we go throughout this series, but those are two that I believe Jesus wants to use to shape and to reshape your life and your mind and the way that you live out the kingdom of God in your little corner of his great world. See, but here's the truth. You can read the Bible and you can pray without having the goals of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing as Jesus did. So I want to invite you to reframe why you do what you do, that your life would be found under these great goals that Jesus gives us to be with him, to become like him, and to do as he did, and that as we do that, we would walk in his joy. There's three questions that I want you to ask this week. Would you do this? Three questions that I want you to ask. One, You can ask this as you're reading the scriptures, as you're going back over maybe some notes from our time together in the scriptures, but ask these three questions. Number one, what is Jesus saying to me? What is Jesus saying to me? You're going to have to listen, but ask him, Jesus, what are you saying to me? Secondly, what does it look like for me to be obedient, to do what he's inviting me to? And then third, who's somebody that I can tell? Who's somebody that 
that I can share with this week what Jesus is doing in my life. With, like, as. Be with, become like, do as. Friends, this is the great invitation. It's not an invitation to go deep sea fishing, but it is an invitation to be a fisher of people, a fisher of men, to bring your whole life under the reign of Jesus, your creator, to eat from the tree of life that's right in front of you today, to put off your old self and to put on the new self, to become a learner and an apprentice of the master rabbi. His name is Jesus. And friends, I am convinced that Jesus is beautiful, that he's the most compelling person to ever walk the face of the earth, that he loves you enough to give his life for you, and that he is calling you in all of your brokenness, in all of your adequacy and all of your questions with all of your doubts he's calling you to be one of his disciples and the question you have to answer is will you follow will you be with him to become like him to do as he did this is the invitation to the way and i pray then in a world of competing invitations and competing worldviews and viewpoints, that you would say yes to the way, that this way would be our way together. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.